Meanwhile, in Donald Trump news, or as it's called now, news. Yeah. That's kind of the case, isn't it? Sorry. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast. As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. In Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster. Out in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM in Columbus and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And yes, coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, and yes... Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week on Radio Sputnik. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for yet another action-packed, thrilling adventure. Coming up, Bernie Sanders could still win the Democratic nomination. No, seriously. That's the provocative headline at Huffington Post today from columnist Seth Abramson. He will be with us momentarily to explain that provocative argument. And uh, it's actually not a bad one, as he spells it out at Huffington Post. We will see if that argument stands up here on the broadcast. Looking forward to that. Also a bit later, Desi Doyen and her Green News Report. Yes, will be I keep here coming back. Or you do, <laughs> no matter what I do, can't I just can't quit you. I'm still here. Yep. Uh, and uh, and and you know what? And th- when you're here, there's a lot of stuff blowing up, leaking, <laughs> poisoning. Funny how that works. Catching fire, and uh, much of it comes back to fossil fuel. And today's Green News Report, I believe, is no exception. Plenty of blowing up and poisoning and, oh, and everything just else. Oh, wait. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you know what? That's always now that I think about it, that is always the case in our Green News report going back the last, what, seven or eight years now at this point. Well, it is kind uh, of yeah. an essential factor of fossil fuels that they tend to be explosive. Yeah, they do. So another explosive report coming up. Uh, but we will also have some good news in our GNR today uh, concerning renewables yep. and concerning the Arctic in today's report. Uh, but there's one that we've been meaning. There's one item we actually we've been meaning to get to for the past week or so. We keep trying to get it into the Green News Report, and as you know, it is just six minutes of 
green news and what? what, what well, it's six minutes of green news Thank analysis you. and snarky, snarky comments. Comment. But there's one a story that is actually a good story, an encouraging story. We keep trying to get it in. We don't have time. So let's do it right now, right here at the beginning of the show. Oh, OK. Well, um, I think the Germany. one you're referring to Germany. is Germany. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, Germany over the weekend had a very uh, for a very short time. They generated 90 percent of their electricity demand solely through renewables. But and yeah, that's kind of that, a big deal. Yeah, well, it's a big deal, but that's because they've got so much sunshine up there. And <laughs> I remember on Fox News, that woman, when uh, Germany started becoming a leader in solar, and I can't remember the woman's name, and she said, well, that's because they have much more sunshine than we do here. Which is so not true. It's not true? Actually, Germany gets about the same level of sunshine as Alaska. Is that right? Yes. And yet... 90% of their yes. uh, their now, energy uh, just over the weekend, not for the, the entire... Yeah, it was just for a short time, but with, with the idea is that 90% of their electricity demand yeah. was served by renewable energy, solar and wind, completely clean. The German economy did not collapse. It's all fine. <laughs> uh, yes, it can be done. Uh, also, some breaking uh, news that uh, came in a bit too late for our Green News report today, but... The Obama administration has issued historic new rules. Explain that. Yes, okay, so the Obama administration, as you said, these are historic landmarks. Breaking methane. rules (laughs) rules. <laughs> yes, for, breaking the methane. Thanks go. for that. You're um yeah. So these are the first ever methane emissions rules now for people who don't know. Methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. It is actually more potent than carbon dioxide at trapping the sun's heat, but only on very short time scales. Methane only lasts a couple of years in the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide can last hundreds to thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's important to cut down the the emissions from methane because they really do have cut a high Methane is Cut what the you're methane because right. they have okay. a high impact as uh-huh. far as global warming goes on the short term. So, and what, with fr- fr- if I could break in with fracking, we get a lot more methane release. Yes, uh, because the nat- methane is a an ingredient in natural gas, and so when it is being drilled for, when it is being distributed across pipelines, when it is uh, coming out of your oven or your gas or whatever, that there are a lot of methane emissions that are then. Released and it's called fugitive methane emissions because they're not intended to be released; they're and, just leaks. And and this is from uh, so we get a lot more methane with fracking, and a lot of people have pointed to fracking as more green than burning coal than coal-fired uh, power plants, but it releases a lot more methane, which, as you say, more potent as far as warming. But the good news. It, it dissipates faster than carbon, which stays around in the atmosphere for centuries. Right. Methane, uh, natural gas, has about half the carbon emissions of coal. So by plugging all of these leaks and stopping stupid, wasteful practices like flaring natural gas when you're out in the field drilling for oil or natural gas, and they flare off, they burn off the excess because they, they don't feel like piping it and selling it. Is that what we see when we drive past the, the fracking and there, there's the flame coming out of the, the That's pipe exactly- Exactly what, flaring it off? That's exactly what that is. That is flaring it off, uh, It's uh, especially on public lands. These are royalties that are being burned off into the atmosphere and not being returned to taxpayers for oh. the product that is being actually extracted. Gotcha. So these methane rules will bring more money to taxpayers for the captured methane gas, mm-hmm. and they will also have a huge impact on climate change by curbing those fugitive methane leaks. It's really huge. This is a big, really? big deal. These so, are the first ever for methane of any kind. There's no rules for, for releasing methane into the atmosphere at all up until right. now in the U.S.? Right. 
So and this is a big deal. So it, how mu- is it expected to make a, a, a big uh, change in the amount, overall amount of uh, greenhouse gas emissions? That, yes, uh, this it, should, it, should make, it should make a sizable chunk. You know, right now with the methane links that we have, they are estimated to basically knock out any advantage that natural gas has over coal unless we get rid of these leaks. So that's why this is important. The oil industry is mm. going to fight it okay. because they say, oh, what? we're no. already voluntarily doing all of this. The problem is that they're voluntarily doing it, just not fast enough, and their voluntary actions have included flaring and wasting natural gas. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, voluntarily, you guys, they're not they're not doing that great. No, they're not. Uh, so thank you, though, for that. Uh, that is uh, good or at least encouraging news. And yes, the uh, fossil fuel, the oil companies will fight it. No doubt this will go on for years and years. But you know yes. what? But the step is being moving taken. the needle in the right direction. Right. It takes time. Democracy apparently takes time. If we had a, a dictator, why, we could take care of this stuff immediately. <laughs> well, it probably wouldn't get taken care of. But just to point out, this is only for new wells that are being drilled. This is not for existing wells. Okay. The EPA has signaled that they are going to make a rule for existing wells, of which there are many, many, many. So that's still but not to come. Yet. Not yet. All right. Very good. Thank you for that uh, uh, breaking story. Also, this breaking story just in... Actually, before we uh, go to air here, uh, so I don't know, I don't have too much on this, but I, I want to share it as the Baltimore Sun reported it. Uh, State Board of Elections officials in Maryland on uh, Thursday have ordered the results of Baltimore's April 26 primary elections decertified. And they've launched a precinct level review of irregularities, according to the paper. Linda Lamone, the administrator of the State Board of Elections, said she became concerned when city officials found 80 provisional ballots that had not been analyzed uh, and an unusually high discrepancy between the number of voters who checked in at polling places and the number of ballots cast. The number of ballots cast at the polls apparently was higher than the number of check-ins at the polling places, according to Lamone. Um... Okay, so a couple of uh, points there. Those provisional ballots, those are ballots that are cast uh, for any number of reasons uh, when a voter shows up and their name is not on the rolls, um, for example. And they say, well, wait, I am registered. And they say, okay, you can vote provisionally. And then they go and do an investigation and they analyze those ballots and decide if they should be properly counted uh, or not or discarded. Uh, And uh, apparently they have found a number of ballots, 80 in this case, uh, that had not been analyzed. Um, I think of larger concern here, however, is the difference in the number of people who signed into the poll books and the number of ballots that were cast. The higher number of more ballots cast than people signed in. At least that's what it uh, what they're suggesting. Now, there are various reasons for that. Sloppy bookkeeping uh, and, yes, of course, ballot stuffing. Uh, ballot uh, Baltimore uh, City, says Lamone, was not able to investigate and resolve these issues to our satisfaction. So we are doing a precinct level review. We're doing this in fairness to the candidates and the voters. It's quite unusual, apparently, for the state to have to step in to these uh to these elections, into a particular city's elections. Baltimore's primary elections produced a number of close races. State Senator Catherine Pugh defeated former Mayor Sheila Dixon in the Democratic primary for mayor by more than 2,400 votes. Three city council races were decided by just a few hundred votes. So all of that could now, all of that is now up in the air. 
depending on the results of this investigation. That comes, by the way, for more than a week, they note a group of activists has been raising concerns about the integrity of the elections. Well done, activists. Election integrity champions saving the day again. Among the issues uh, that uh, were pointed out, and I don't know yet what to make of this, eight data files went missing for about a day after the election. It is unclear to me, and I apologize to the listeners, it is unclear to me what a data file is in this context. I've never heard that. I don't know if that means a memory card from one of the the machines. Baltimore, uh, Maryland, for the first time since 2002, since they switched to 100% unverifiable Diebold touchscreens, they used paper in their elections uh, on April 26. Paper ballots. They have finally moved back to paper ballots, yet those paper ballots are counted by optical scan computers that have memory cards that track the the scanned ballots throughout the day and so forth. So I don't know if that's what they mean by eight data files that went missing for a day. So a whole bunch of questions coming out of uh, Baltimore, which has led the state to decertify the city's elections. Now, Lamone, uh, the election director there uh, for the state, said it's not unusual for the number of ballots counted to be different from the number of voters who check into the polls. But if the discrepancy is larger than five voters per jurisdiction, the state asks the county or city to investigate and explain what happened. But the city failed to adequately explain this issue uh, this time, according to the Baltimore Sun. Uh, Lamone uh, said that because of discrepancies in some of the data for Baltimore City, the state administrator has decided that the election data for all precincts in the city will now be reviewed. In light of that decision, the Baltimore City Board of Canvassers will be rescinding its certification of the election results pending completion of the state board's review. Uh, Okay. Before uh, Bernie Sanders uh, supporters freak out too much, Uh, Let me point out here that uh, Hillary Clinton did win in the state of Maryland reportedly uh, in the April 26th primary by a huge number, 63 percent to 33 percent reportedly. That comes out to about 250,000 votes in the state of Maryland. Now, uh, Baltimore has more votes, I believe, in the in the city of Baltimore. That's the largest jurisdiction, as I understand it, in the state. Um, But two hundred and fifty thousand flipped votes uh, or added votes, stuffed votes. That's a lot of votes. That's a lot of ballots uh, if you're going to do it by uh, by stuffing. If you're going to just, you know, flip the uh, uh, the electronic tabulators, that's easy. That's easy. But so far. We have no evidence of that, and we have no evidence yet of 250,000 additional votes. But we will see. We will keep our eyes on that story. That's an interesting one. Um, and, you know, and as I've said, as I've said for years, said on this program, uh, it takes a while sometimes to uh, make sure these results are actually accurate. And uh, problems in in these elections often don't come up the day the you know, the day of the election, the night uh, while they're counting results. Oftentimes not even the next day. I've said this over and over again. It takes days. It takes weeks. Sometimes it takes months. So we're now on uh, several weeks since that April 26 primary in Baltimore and just now beginning to uh, find this problem. This investigation, they say, will will go into the next week. 
and who knows beyond. So uh, way to go, election integrity folks in Baltimore. Uh, okay, Donald Trump met today with uh, Republican leaders at the Capitol, specifically with uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan, and uh, to try to amend their ways, as I have warned you, as I have long warned you they would. I've said, uh, you know, they're going to come together. The Republicans are all going to come together behind this guy. House Speaker Paul Ryan and presumptive GOP nominee Trump, Donald Trump said in a joint statement after their Thursday Capitol Hill meeting that they had a, quote, honest conversation about their differences and took a, quote, positive first step towards party unity. With that focus, we had a great conversation this morning. We are honest about our few differences. We recognize that there are also many important areas of common ground, Ryan and Trump said, uh, or Greg Walden of the National Republican Congressional Committee uh, said in his own statement that the last thing I want is to give the same Obama, Clinton, Sanders philosophy another four years in charge. While I may disagree with the rhetoric of Mr. Trump uh, and uh, some of his policy positions, he is the better option than Hillary Clinton in the White House. That's why all along I said I intend to support the GOP nominee. So they are all coalescing. They are all coming together, just as I told you they would. Republican National Committee Chair Reince Priebus described the meeting as positive and cooperative. He said it was a positive mood. It was a mood of cooperation and a feeling that it's time to unify the party. And I think it was great. It was a really positive step towards unification, said Priebus. There's never 100% unity on anything. I don't think most of us agree with our own spouses 100% of the time, said Priebus. But like Reagan said, my 80% friend is not my 20% enemy. We believe that. So this is just the beginning of the process. They are all going to come together. They are all going to support the Republican nominee this November. No matter uh, what they have said during the primary process, Uh, The Republicans want to win and they will come together. And at the same time, uh, Donald Trump is sharpening his attacks on uh, the current front runner for the uh, Democratic Party, Hillary Clinton. And uh, the polls between the head to head polls, as we've been reporting over the past few days between uh, between Trump and Clinton, are tightening up both nationally uh, and in some very important swing states. So should Democrats be having second thoughts as they head towards the uh, uh, convention in July with a number of primary elections between here and there? Are they having second thoughts? Bernie Sanders has been winning a lot of primaries of late. Is anything changing in the Democratic Party? And is it too late even if it is changing? My guest coming up says, no, it's not too late. Bernie Sanders could still win the Democratic nomination. And Seth Abramson will explain why next. This is the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so, now more than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one-time-only contribution. 
While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds right now to stop by bradblog.com donate today. And thanks. Democrats may want to think what they're about to do. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As we have been reporting over the past few days here, uh, new polling from Reuters and Ipsos shows Donald Trump now in a dead heat with Hillary Clinton nationally after having surged some 13 points over the past week, at least according to uh, that new poll from Reuters. As disturbing... If not more so, she is essentially tied with Donald Trump, according to new Quinnipiac polling in three key swing states, Florida, Pennsylvania and Ohio, where Trump is actually ahead by a few points. Those are, of course, <clears throat> just two polls. Uh, others show Clinton nationally with a lead over Donald Trump. But in pretty much every one of the polls, both the swing state polling and for many, many months now, the national polling, Bernie Sanders does better in pretty much every one of those polls against Donald Trump, uh, who is now, of course, the presumptive GOP nominee. And um, often it shows Bernie Sanders doing much, much better than Hillary Clinton in those same head to head polls. Nonetheless, for months the corporate media has told us over and over again that Hillary Clinton has this nomination locked up. There's no need to go any further. It's all over. Don't even need to bother to vote, apparently. Uh, but indeed, the pledged delegate math does suggest that uh, this thing could be very close to over. And uh, those claims that, uh, you know, there's no way Bernie can catch up uh, could be very true at this point. And it's definitely true if... The so-called superdelegates, the unpledged superdelegates, end up voting as they have suggested to the media that they plan to vote at the uh, at the convention at the Democratic convention this July. But those superdelegates on the Democratic side, the uh, the party insiders and elected officials, they are unpledged delegates. They will go to the convention in Philadelphia. They can have said whatever they wanted to the media, but they have never actually cast their vote for either of these uh, these two candidates. They can vote however they like at the Democratic convention, no matter what they've told the media up until now. And and some of them, by the way, months and months ago said they would uh, support Hillary Clinton. But in many cases, that was before Sanders even got into this race in any legitimate manner, even Hillary Clinton. Uh, even if she ends up heading to uh, the convention in Philly with more pledged votes than Sanders, more pledged delegates than Sanders, is there reason to believe, as the Sanders campaign has been arguing, that they may be able to persuade those superdelegates to change their mind and go with Bernie Sanders instead when it's time for them to actually vote? 
Even if, as his current trajectory suggests, despite a whole bunch of primary election wins lately for Bernie Sanders, even if he fails to win the majority of pledged delegates by the end of the primary season in mid-June. Would the superdelegates change their mind and vote for the person who did not get the majority of delegates by the end of uh, the primary season? Writing at Huffington Post this week, University of New Hampshire's Seth Abramson says, yes, they might. In his provocative article headlined, Bernie Sanders could still win the Democratic nomination. No, seriously. He argues that uh, recent polling concerning the uh, uh, recent polling and concerns about the strength of Trump, the weakness, real or otherwise, of Hillary Clinton and a bunch of late primary election wins for Bernie Sanders could change the outlook for the Vermont senator and for the unpledged delegates who, it seems, will be needed to give a majority of delegates to either Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton. Joining us now to make his case is Seth Abramson. He's a Huffington Post columnist, an attorney, graduate of Harvard Law School, assistant professor at the University of New Hampshire, and the author of seven books, most recently, Data, published by Blaze Vox earlier this year. He's also a former attorney for the New Hampshire Public Defender. Seth Abramson, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you for having me, Brad. Uh, All right. Now, listen, I don't want to give false hope here to Bernie Sanders fans, but you do make a pretty compelling argument in your piece at Huffington Post that there is, in fact, still a path for Bernie Sanders to win the nomination. It has to do with those unpledged superdelegates. But before we get into the reasons why that why you argue that those party insiders and elected officials may end up wanting to rethink uh, their, their previous uh, public statements of support for Hillary Clinton. I think it's important to explain, as you do in your piece, why Democrats even have these so-called superdelegates in the first place. Uh, tell us why these these superdelegates even exist on the Democratic side. A bit of the history there and what they're supposed to be uh, what what they're supposed to be there for in the first place. So, superdelegates were created by the Democratic Party in 1984 as a reaction to what had happened at the Democratic National Convention in 1980 when Ted Kennedy and his supporters came to the convention and almost surprised the assembled Democratic senators and congressmen by taking away the nomination from Jimmy Carter, uh, who did end up being the nominee in 1980. So a, a commission called the Hunt Commission was created in 1982, and by 1984, the convention in 84, a decision had been made that superdelegates would be created, that uh, Democratic elected officials would actually have a separate vote at the Democratic National Convention to avoid something happening uh, at any future convention as had happened or almost happened in 1980. So what I say in my article is that the superdelegates were not created to simply validate the popular vote winner or the delegate count winner. In fact, quite the opposite. The only time that superdelegates are activated, the only time that they really matter and that they are actually doing something other than just showing up at the convention and validating what's already happened, is when they are, in fact, contradicting the will of the popular vote and the delegate count and are voting down a presumptive uh, nominee. Now, the reason that they would do that is the same reason they would have wanted to do that in 1980, and that's if they think that the presumed nominee cannot win the fall election. And that's definitely the view of the majority of superdelegates. Howard Dean himself came out, he took a lot of plaque for this, and he said, I'm not going to vote based on the popular vote or the delegate count. I'm going to vote based on what's best for the party 
in the fall election. So, in so th- I guess I would say that the Democrats are lucky because we get a preview of how big a mistake we're about to make before it's too late to change it. So, and that's how these superdelegates might feel in Philadelphia. So in, in theory, back in, uh, back in 1980, uh, when they dodged, well, Jimmy Carter did end up losing uh, that uh, 1980 race uh, to Ronald Reagan. But the theory was that had Ted Kennedy been able to win enough pledged delegates, that that would have been even worse for the Democratic Party, and therefore we want to avoid that in the future it, 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 by by putting these delegates, in, these super delegates, in place uh, to, to avoid such a case. That that was the reasoning originally back in uh, 1982 and 1984. Well, you know, as you're as you're indicating, Brad, it does turn out to be ironic in hindsight because, of course, the establishment was supporting Jimmy Carter as the then incumbent president, and mm-hmm. he did end up losing to Ronald Reagan uh, pretty handily in 1980. Right. But having said that, what it suggests is that the Democratic establishment can be mistaken. And the question is whether they realize their mistake at a time when it's still possible to change it. The situation right now is that I don't think Bernie Sanders believes, I don't think his supporters believe he's going to get the 66% of pledged delegates remaining to catch up to Hillary Clinton in the pledged delegates. Mm-hmm. But everyone pretty much agrees that no one is going to win this thing with just pledged delegates. Hillary Clinton won't get the 73.3% of pledged delegates she needs to clinch with just pledged delegates. So once it goes to the superdelegates, they have a chance to rectify uh, a mistake. And all the polling that you just cited suggests that it is a mistake well, and for the you, Democrats to nominate Hillary. You make uh, you certainly make a compelling argument, uh, Seth, about the uh, the reason for those superdelegates. You're right. If uh, if all they were there to do was to underscore the majority there of of the pledge delegates, there would really be no reason to have them whatsoever. You just go with the with the majority the way the Republicans did, and I suspect the Republicans. Uh, may, may, well, we're wishing and, and hoping throughout the uh, primary process that they had a superdelegate uh, situation on their side so they could stop a Donald Trump, although I think he's going to end up doing, uh, he's about the best candidate they could find. But that's another issue for another discussion for another day. So the reason that these superdelegates are there to keep the party from making a mistake, that has never been invoked in truth, since the superdelegates were put in place in 1984, right? That's right. No, it hasn't happened. Though, of course, in the, the, the swath of the history of the Democratic Party, uh, it's pretty recent that the superdelegates were created in mm-hmm. 1984. Right. And most of the uh, primary elections since 1984 have not been particularly close. I, I don't think people realize that right now we have a single-digit uh, race in terms of pledged delegate support between Sanders and Clinton, and that makes this the second closest Democratic primary in the last 32 years. Mm. So the only other example we can really look at as an analogy is 2008, a situation where Hillary Clinton decided to, and it was a close thing, she decided to concede. But had she not conceded, we would have come uh, across this situation back in 2008. Anytime a leader in the pledged delegates can't get to 59%, mm-hmm. that's the, the sort of magic number at which superdelegates are going to be required, Anytime someone can't get to 59 percent, it goes to the superdelegates and we have this conversation. And remind us, back in 2008, going into the convention back in 2008, uh, Barack Obama had a uh, he had the majority of pledged delegates, the delegates that people had actually voted for throughout the primary and caucus season. But had the superdelegates who had uh, said out loud that they were going to support Hillary Clinton, had they actually voted that way? That would have ended up uh, putting her over the top over uh, Barack Obama. Am I remembering that correctly? 
You are, but, but here's the real distinction I want to make between 2008 and 2016 that I think a lot of people are missing. The reason that the superdelegates who had been supporting Hillary Clinton switched to Barack Obama wasn't simply because Barack Obama was the leader at that point, but because it was clear to all Democrats nationally that both Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were viable fall election candidates in 2008. So whoever the leader was should, should get it. That was the view of the superdelegates and I think of most Democrats. In the situation that I talked about in my article, Bernie Sanders could well win 19 of the final 25 states in the Democratic nominating season, which is significantly better than Barack Obama did in winning the nomination in 2008. So this is a very different situation where the superdelegates might be looking at one candidate who doesn't any longer appear viable for the fall election. And again, that wasn't the situation they were in in 2008. I'm speaking with Seth Abramson, Huffington Post columnist, University of uh, 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 New Hampshire, assistant professor. Uh, okay, uh, Seth, full disclosure here, uh, you have been a longtime supporter of Bernie Sanders uh, going through your, your columns over the past several months. You've been making the case for him in your Huffington Post columns now uh, for, for quite a while, correct? I, I just want to get that out there. Absolutely. And, and what I would say, yeah. though, uh, Brad, is that I'm one of only uh, maybe three or four columnists who are regularly publishing what you might call a minority report <laughs> about the master narrative of this election. Uh -huh. And so I, I am a Sanders supporter, and I have written uh, from that perspective. But uh, hopefully people will keep in mind that it's only a very small number of people in the media who are presenting uh, this, this alternate narrative that pushes back against the mainstream uh, media narrative that, to be honest, turned out to be wrong with Donald Trump. And with the numbers now, it's starting to look wrong with Hillary Clinton. Uh, fair enough. And I and I don't mention that by way of, of, of you know criticism at all. I just want people to know exactly who it is uh, we're talking to and, and what where your thinking comes from. Okay, so with that in mind now, let's talk about the conditions that you see, you spell out in your Huffington Post article, uh, the conditions that you see as necessary to make the case to the superdelegates that they should throw their support to Bernie, even though the American voters awarded more pledged delegates to Hillary Clinton during the primary and the caucus, uh, primary and caucus pro uh, process. What has to happen between now and Philadelphia for that even to be a plausible scenario, Seth? Well, according to the dialogue that has been uh, conducted on, let's give CNN as an example, over the last 10 days, the thinking is that Bernie Sanders needs to run the table with possibly the exception of winning New Jersey. Mm -hmm. Now, running the table, to be clear, is, uh, is a theory that would have started actually almost two weeks ago now. Bernie had to win Indiana, and he did. He had to win West Virginia, and he did. He's going to have to win Kentucky and Oregon, and I think everyone agrees that that's at least a possibility. Um, it's a reasonable possibility this coming Tuesday. And then on June 7th, he would have to win California, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, and New Mexico. And then, as the theory goes, he might well lose New Jersey. But even in that situation, he would have won 18 of the final 25 states. Right now, he is favored to win in Montana, North Dakota, and South Dakota. California appears competitive. New Mexico appears competitive. And as I mentioned, both Kentucky and Oregon seem competitive. So the theory that has been discussed, the, the run-the-table theory, mm -hmm. does not predict that this will definitely happen. However, it says that there is a real possibility 
that it could happen and that the media should be discussing it as such. Now, uh, a lot of people have brought up, you know, whenever Bernie Sanders uh, brings up the fact that he is, in fact, winning a whole bunch of primaries late in the game here. They also point out that uh, uh, Obama lost, what was it, seven of the 10 uh, final contests back in back in 2008. Uh, I don't know if that number is exactly right, but how, how do you respond to uh, to that? You know, th- this is ha- after uh, it looks like the nomination is going to go one way or another. Voters are kind of freed up to vote however they feel, vote their conscience. Uh, and Obama also lost a whole bunch of races late in the game. What's your response? Well, I'll tell you what the interesting thing about that is. It was clear that Secretary Clinton began to fear precisely the scenario I'm talking about. When she came out and said something odd that she had never pointed out before, starting about a week ago, around the time that this theory started making its way through the media, and she said, you know, I won nine of the last 12 states in 2008, right. uh, pointing out the, the theory that sort of you just put forward. Now, the funny thing is that's not true, and anyone can go online and see that while she did win six of the last nine states, she did not win nine of the last 12. And in <laughs> fact, as I pointed out, if you expand it even a, a little bit more, you see that in the last 25 states, Barack Obama won 16, and she won nine. So while she finished strong in the last nine contests, what we're talking about with Bernie Sanders is him finishing stronger than Barack Obama in the last 25 contests, a very different situation uh, from even the corrected data that we get from Secretary Clinton. But I think more importantly, I think what I've been hearing a lot lately, and maybe your listeners are thinking, is hold on a second, don't early voting states matter just as much as late voting states? Right. If she did well back in February, back when she was winning 60% of the delegates, now she's winning about 50% of them and headed towards winning about 45% of them. But back in February when she was winning 60%, you know, those votes should matter just as much as what people say. And here's the interesting response that I give them. No, they shouldn't. And here's, here's why I say that. In every single election, every four years, the early voting states matter more than the late voting states. And no one knows that better than the voters there in California. In every four-year election for president, Californians' Democratic votes usually don't matter mm-hmm. because the early voting states have had such an influence on who dropped out of the race and right. who got into the debates. By the time it gets to you guys, it's, it's all over but for the crying. So normally, early voting states matter more. In an election like this, where a front-runner appeals to, appears to be coming apart at the seams, I think it's okay to say that late voting states matter more, because frankly, it's the one situation in which that's allowed to happen. So I don't think anyone in early voting states, like the one I'm in right now, New Hampshire, can really complain if late voting states matter more, because it's uh, it's sort of like turnabout is fair play once every 32 years. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, you're right. And you, you had to play the California card on me, didn't you, <laughs> Seth? Uh, good point. Uh, nonetheless, uh, listen, isn't it just fundamentally undemocratic, small d, undemocratic? You know, when the voters, they have voiced their opinions throughout this long primary process, Shouldn't that voice just be respected as is? As, by the way, even Bernie Sanders and his team had been arguing uh, during the earlier months of the primary. How do they overcome what would be charges of hypocrisy? What are charges of hypocrisy that I've heard, uh, you know, in this scenario? Early on, they were saying, hey, the superdelegates should have nothing to do with it. Now they're saying, hey, superdelegates should absolutely have something to do with it. They should be invoked. Uh, I mean, you're calling for a process that is arguably undemocratic. How do you respond to that, Seth? Well, there are two responses to that. First of all, we have to understand that it is Bernie Sanders who is looking to follow the Democratic Party rules and Hillary Clinton who is looking to change them. 
Hillary Clinton got 86% of her superdelegates at a time when not a single American had voted. There was no popular vote leader or delegate count leader, and all these superdelegates lined up with Hillary Clinton back in 2015 on the theory, and it was a correct theory, that the purpose of superdelegates is to determine who can win in November of 2016. And Bernie Sanders saw her do this, and right now, in 2016, all he's saying is, I'm going to do the very same thing. I'm going to make the argument to superdelegates that I am more electable in the fall. It's Hillary Clinton who, in 2015, was saying that the standard is who can win, and it now should be something very different, the popular vote and the delegate count. But, Brad, I want to make one other important point, because this will really surprise your listeners. Okay. I I would consider it undemocratic if Bernie Sanders were to win in this way. However, I also know that Bernie Sanders wants to abolish superdelegates. So this is an interesting win-win situation. The Democratic Party can get the stronger candidate in November by nominating Bernie Sanders, but that would lead to enough of an outcry on principle that it would allow Bernie Sanders, ironically, to do what he wants to do, which is abolish superdelegates. So I do think you almost need to have superdelegates weigh in in this way in order to abolish them, it would just be a cherry on top that you would also end up with the best candidate for the fall. Well, yes, and it would also be uh, no small irony that he was able to do that because of those superdelegates. But you you made one statement there, Seth, that I, I, I need to press you on a little bit. You said she changed the rules. She didn't really change the rules, did she? What, what rules did she change uh, as you charge in this case? Oh, no, sorry. So to be clear, Brad, the rules didn't change. Hillary Clinton's rhetoric about the rules changed. The okay. rules about superdelegates have, have been the same uh, for 32 years. Luis Miranda and Debbie Wasserman Schultz have told the media this in 2016 repeatedly. Superdelegates don't vote until the convention, and they vote based upon what they consider is best for the party. Those rules have not changed. Hillary Clinton in 2015 embraced those rules and embraced that understanding of what superdelegates do. Now her people are going on TV and saying, no, 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 the superdelegates do not pick the best candidate for the fall. They pick whoever <laughs> wins the popular vote and whoever wins the delegate count. That is, in fact, not what superdelegates do. So Hillary Clinton has changed her rhetoric, okay. even as the rules haven't changed. Bernie Sanders has consistently understood what superdelegates do in the Democratic Party. He has consistently opposed what they do. However, we have to be fair to Bernie Sanders. He's allowed to oppose what superdelegates do and want to abolish them, which he does, but simultaneously say, I'm going to play by the rules. And the rules are that I get to go to Philadelphia and make my case to these people. All right. Those are the rules. And your, your argument, fair enough, your argument is essentially that Sanders is, you believe, more likely to win in November for, for a number of reasons, principally uh, due to that uh, pretty consistent head-to-head polling showing Sanders doing much better against Clinton. I'm sorry, much better against Trump than Clinton does. But the public has had access to those polls throughout the primary process. For whatever reason, they've decided that they prefer Clinton. Uh, You know, she also loves to cite the popular vote numbers, which I don't think is particularly representative, given the caucus process that is used in many states. But isn't this process uh, about who Democrats want as their candidate rather than who does or doesn't have the best chance to win? Uh, actually, I, I think this is a tale of two elections. In the first half of the election uh, season, or actually we would say the first third of the election season, Hillary Clinton won 60% of the pledged delegates, and I think the polling was looking pretty good for her for the fall election. We are now in a very different environment where Democratic voters would actually be hard-pressed to find any data. I mean any data, head-to-head data, national data, battleground state data, 
favorability data, any data, suggesting that she runs better against Donald Trump than Bernie Sanders. That wasn't the case prior to Super Tuesday, but it is the case now that this has become, and it has been since Super Tuesday, a 50-50 race in terms of delegates. So I think the argument that Democratic voters are ignoring the fall votes or the, the fall uh, polling or that they've seen it and they've ignored it uh, isn't actually accurate. I would suggest that they're seeing it and they are embracing it. Back on uh, March 22nd, when I wrote an article saying that the tide had turned in this election, uh, I was ridiculed, and perhaps understandably, because it was an odd view to take after what had been going on, but I was ridiculed in the Washington Post and elsewhere. After that March 22nd article, Bernie Sanders has won 11 states, and Hillary Clinton has won five. So this uh, election, in terms of state victories, has turned. In terms of delegates, it's turned. Bernie Sanders is now looking at perhaps winning 55% of the delegates awarded in the final third of the nominating process. That says to me that Democrats are looking at the fall data, and they're very concerned, particularly with this new Reuters poll that you've been talking about and the Quinnipiac polls in Ohio, Florida, Pennsylvania, and New Hampshire showing those battleground states as dead heats. Uh, Hillary Clinton's favorables uh, going down, Donald Trump's unfavorables going down as the party unites uh, the Mm -hmm. Republican Party against Hillary Clinton. I think people are scared, and I think we are seeing that in the voting results. Well, and I think uh, you should uh, wear that ridicule from the Washington Post as a as a badge of honor. I know, I know, I do. They have been wrong throughout this entire process. Uh, I was receiving much of that same ridicule when I was yelling and screaming, uh, "Hey, Donald Trump's going to win that Republican nomination!" By the way, and and I've been also uh, getting a lot of ridicule when I'm saying when I have been saying over the past few months that yeah, he's going to do really well against the Democratic nominee and. Dem- Democrats ought to be careful what they wish for. Uh, But uh, you're saying that superdelegates could change their votes or that they should, in fact, change their votes, that they should support uh, Sanders, who you believe is a stronger candidate against Trump. Um, But this is the superdelegates turning against their own party voters. How would that go over uh, in in Philadelphia, Seth? Couldn't could, couldn't that just turn into an absolute disaster for Democrats? Well, again, it's it's difficult for ha- us to have this conversation today because the article that I wrote assumes that certain things will happen between now and a month from now, uh, July seventh or even July fourteenth. Mm-hmm. And what I asked my readers to do in my article is to really imagine what it would look like if Hillary had lost let's say, 10 states in a row, Indiana, West Virginia, Kentucky, Oregon, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, New Jersey, New Mexico, California, 10 states in a row, including the largest state in the country. And when people really close their eyes and imagine that scenario, and then also imagine that by then, I think we can be pretty certain that if those things had happened, Donald Trump would be in the lead nationally and in the lead in battleground states. I don't think at that point it becomes a question of whether superdelegates will switch their votes. And even on CNN, which is no friend to Bernie Sanders, they haven't been saying that in that situation superdelegates might change their votes. They've said that they would change their votes. The only question is how many of them would. And you certainly would have some who would decide that, you know, you need to go down with the sinking ship and we're going to put forward this terrible dynastic candidate who will lose to a beatable foe in November. Um, Some superdelegates, I'm sure, would take that view. But there are others who would simply look at what happened back on Super Tuesday, back in February, and say, look, things have changed dramatically since those voters voted for Hillary Clinton. We have information now that they couldn't have had then, and the information we have now is that Hillary Clinton is going to lose and put in the White House one of the most dangerous politicians 
ever to run for office in American history. And I think that's a big deal to me, to a lot of voters, and frankly, to a lot of superdelegates. And uh, I should be clear, uh, Seth, when you say that the superdelegates could change their vote, they have not actually voted. They uh, you know, have said out loud, oh, I support Hillary Clinton or I support Bernie Sanders, but they have not actually cast their vote. That will not happen until July, now uh, at the convention. Uh, so it's not really a matter of changing their vote. I guess it's uh, changing their allegiance or their announced allegiance. Uh, but as mentioned at the top of the segment, Seth, I don't want to give uh, to offer false hope out there for Bernie Sanders fans. But you do make a compelling argument in your piece at Huffington Post that Sanders could still win the nomination. I know you're not a fortune teller here, uh, and, and but you couldn't do much worse than the bulk of the corporate media pundits out there, uh, certainly at Washington Post and elsewhere. So uh, wh- what do you see as the real odds of something like what you describe at this point actually uh, coming to pass? Well, I'll tell you, Brad, what I know. Uh, and, and what I know is is this, and I think uh, very few people would disagree. In fact, most Clinton supporters would agree with what I'm about to say. Uh, Hillary Clinton will declare victory on June 7th. Um, she will declare victory on the basis of ignoring what you just said about superdelegates being able to change their endorsements uh, into votes at the Philadelphia Convention. And she will announce her victory on July 7th, not just because she'll be adding superdelegates to her total when the DNC has said that she can't do that, but she will actually announce on the 7th with the media's support. I think the media will declare this over on the 7th. And frankly, and here's the shocking thing, I think the DNC will announce it over on the 7th, even though they've said that superdelegates do not vote. They only endorse prior to July 27th in Philadelphia. I also think that President Obama and Joe Biden will probably come forward and put their fingers on the scale on June 7th and help Hillary Clinton declare victory then. If she's able to successfully convince the country that she has already won, we will have a situation like we had with George W. Bush in 2000, when if you can appear to be the winner at the end of an election, you sometimes end up to be the winner, even if you actually haven't won yet. There's one thing that would change that, Brad, and that's if she wins the state that you're sitting in right now. If she, uh, if she loses uh, California, excuse me, if she loses the state of California to Bernie Sanders, I don't know that the optics are possible for her anymore to go out that day and say, I've just won the Democratic nomination. I think that's the real key. So to me, the question of whether we'll have this contested convention, whether superdelegates will get the jitters, uh, obviously Bernie Sanders has to win Kentucky and Oregon, but he also has to win California. And I think it will be a competitive race there. I think it'll be close. I don't want to project who's going to win because I think that's folly, but I will say that it will be close. And that if Bernie Sanders wins it, I don't think she can come out that night and say, well, I just lost California, but guess what, everybody? I just won the nomination. (laughs) You really can't do that in today's politics. That would force this to a contested convention. You can try to do it, Brad, but I think that uh, Californians would rebel if she came out on the night of them saying they don't want her as the nominee, and she said, well, I am anyway, deal with it. Yeah, well, that may be exactly what happens. We will see Seth Abrams once again playing the California card against us out here, (laughs) Uh, and for good reason. Uh, He also argues, quote, the Democratic primary is indeed far from over. That's in his Huffington Post piece this week, headlined, Bernie Sanders could still win the Democratic nomination. No, seriously. All right, we will see. Seth, really appreciate you joining us here today, and uh, hopefully we will uh, discuss this idea more in the weeks ahead if your scenario plays out as as you suggest. Thanks, Seth. Greatly appreciated. 
Thanks for having me, Brad. I appreciate it. You bet. Check out Seth Abramson at Huffington Post and at SethAbramson.net and on the Twitters at Seth Abramson. That's A-B-R-A-M-S-O-N. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be back with more Bradcast and, yes, the Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. No time for chit-chat. we got to get right to it. Our latest Green News report. The fire has been ruled as incendiary. 2013 West Texas fertilizer explosion ruled a criminal act. This is pretty good news. Price of renewable energy is dropping fast around the world. U.S. Geological Survey confirms fracking is contaminating drinking water in West Virginia. Plus, it's official, Big Oil has abandoned the Arctic. Not sure what that means, but it sounds like good news. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. So if I take hairspray, and if I spray it in my apartment, which is all sealed and... You're telling me that affects the ozone layer. Yes. I say, no way, folks. No way. Truly spoken like a man who spent years inhaling aerosol in a poorly ventilated room. (laughs) This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Toyin. Never mind the fact that the presumptive Republican nominee for president is obsessed with hairspray. Stephen Colbert also had this to point out. I was surprised to see Trump so hung up on the current state of hairspray. (laughs) Because I looked it up and the hairspray that destroys the ozone was banned in 1978. (laughs) So Trump has been mad about hairspray for 38 years. Well, the man knows how to hold a grudge, I guess. (laughs) Apparently so. What else do you have for us today that doesn't have to do with Donald Trump and hairspray? Well, it's not nearly as funny, unfortunately. Remember the deadly explosion in West Texas where improperly stored hazardous fertilizer chemicals ignited in 2013? I do. Killing 15 people, including 12 first responders, and destroyed more than 500 homes? Well, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives on Wednesday announced that Arson was the cause of the fire at the unguarded facility, triggering the massive explosion. Here's ATF Special Agent Robert Elder. All reasonable, accidental, and natural fire scenarios were hypothesized, considered, tested, and eliminated as being fire causes. The only hypothesis that could not be eliminated is incendiary. No criminal arrests have been made and the investigation continues. The Chemical Safety Board ruled the disaster was preventable because the 60 tons of explosive chemicals were stored in flimsy wooden bins near homes and schools. Attempts to upgrade safety regulations for fertilizer storage facilities have stalled in Congress. As we always say here, elections have consequences. They do indeed. More fracking water contamination. On the heels of a Duke University study last week, 
finding fracking wastewater had left widespread and persistent toxic pollution in North Dakota. Well, in West Virginia, the U.S. Geological Survey has definitively confirmed that a dumping site for fracking fluids has contaminated Wolf Creek, a West Virginia waterway that feeds into the drinking water supply and is also harming the ecosystem. Wasn't it West Virginia that had to contend with that uh, toxic pollution from coal ash from that uh, Freedom Industries a few years ago? Yes, it was. Man, if we get the fossil fuels the hell out of West Virginia, maybe the folks there will be able to drink some clean water for once. It's official. Big oil has abandoned the Arctic. In the wake of Shell Oil losing $8 billion over eight years attempting to find oil in the Arctic, new documents uncovered by conservation group Oceana show that the oil industry has quietly relinquished nearly all of their drilling rights in U.S. Arctic waters at a loss of $2.5 billion. A handful of leases still remain. Pressure is now growing on President Obama to ban Arctic drilling altogether. But don't worry, humans are still heading to the Arctic anyway. Oh, good. With dramatic melting of the Arctic sea ice thanks to global warming, a massive luxury cruise ship is set to take to the now open Northwest Passage this summer. The ship's nearly 2,000 passengers and crew will outnumber residents in communities along the route, which are far from emergency and first responders. Canadian officials and the American and Canadian Coast Guards say they are now holding special meetings to get ready. Okay, but there won't be any drilling while they're up there, right? (laughs) Certainly not. All right, sounds nice. Some good news. The price of renewable energy is dropping fast, and solar energy in particular is now cheaper than fossil fuels for electricity in many parts of the world, and that's without subsidies or mandates. At a Stanford University energy conference last week, former U.S. Energy Secretary Stephen Chu said this. Clean energy is actually getting much cheaper than even I, as a perennial technical optimist, thought it was going to be. Chu pointed to Mexico, where at a recent auction, private companies bid a record low price for the opportunity to generate solar electricity, again, without any subsidies, cheaper than conventional fossil fuels. It's just money, including profit. This is pretty good news. Good news indeed. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Line it up, baby! Hey! You know, our guest on yesterday's program, Bob Kincaid, uh, he, he runs the Head on Radio Network. He's one of our Green News Report affiliates. He's from, of course, West Virginia, and he uh, tweeted in response to today's report, that creek that runs into a public water supply, that's my public water supply. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, indeed. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, to Seth Abramson of the University of New Hampshire and of Huffington Post. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it at bradblog.com. It's free. Love to see you there. Say hello. Drop me an email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at TheBradBlog. Hashtag Bradcast. All right. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Hey!